Hello and welcome to Scrapcom Talks. I'm your host, Jafar Hasnan. Today we are going to talk about the impact of misinformation and the abundance of uh, uncensored information on the real world, including the financial sectors and also the wider political spectrum. And to discuss this further, joining me today is uh, Dr. Mark Thomas. He's an adjunct professor at Harvard University's Extension School. Dr. Thomas, thank you very much for joining us today on this podcast. You're welcome, Jaffa. Now, Dr. Thomas, to begin with, uh, from an economic point of view, what is the real impact of uh, misinformation and uncensored uh, information on the real uh, world? The short answer is that it increases volatility. Let me try to start with explaining how our system, how our economic system works. Uh, now, most of the world, 95% even more, is uh, basically a capitalist system. So within a capitalist system of production, what you have is uh, individual companies or individuals are producing based on some expectation as regarding how much they would be selling their product. So because in a world where you don't have perfect information and perfect foresight of what other people are doing, meaning both consumers, producers that are competing with you, when you don't know what's happening outside your immediate sphere, you are producing and you are trying to sell without knowing how much you would be selling, how much of your product you will be selling. You would not know uh, what, you, what the profit that you will be realizing because you don't know what the others are doing. So when you have more information, when you know more about what, what your competitors are doing, then you can plan your product, you can plan your production accordingly and not risk uh, uh, losses. So if you have better information, accurate information, then uh, there will be no uh, overproduction and therefore uh, the business cycle that we have to live in within a capitalist system becomes more mild. It becomes more tempered, less severe. So perfect information or better information is better for the capitalist system. The question, however, is that with the internet revolution, with the information revolution, we don't have that. We, don't, we have a lot of information, abundance of information and uncensored information. That means that whatever you're hearing, uh, you don't really know whether it's true or false. And so what does that do to the real world? Well, to the real world, it increases uncertainty. Basically, you are going to look around, see what makes sense, what doesn't. You have to make a judgment, base your production level accordingly. So you may be right. You may make a profit. You may realize the profit that you want, or you may be wrong based on that information. So it's and a game of probability? Yes. Probability in the sense that, uh, you know, to the extent to which you don't know whether the information is accurate. Now, that is more uh, clear, actually, in the financial world. It's much easier to explain it in the financial world. Look, for example, uh, I'll, let me give you this example. About maybe like 15 years ago, there was some news that the, 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 the Hungarian currency was under attack because they had internal problems with the budget, with their balance of payments, with their trade balance. They, had, they start to have economic problems. In the worldwide, however, most people, uh, many people don't know the difference between Hungary and a different country. They know it is somewhere in Central Europe, but they don't know exactly where it is. At the same time, where these rumors of, of the bad economic conditions in Hungary, which, by the way, were true, taking place, the uh, Czech crown, which is a country that is not even bordering Hungary, the currency of the Czech Republic started to fall severely. And people in the Czech Republic were saying, well, well, wait a minute, this, is, this was Hungary, has nothing to do with us. 
we don't even have that kind of uh, trade connection with Hungary. It is a different country. But but nevertheless, because people don't know the difference, they were selling everything that they had that was related to Central Europe. So, uh, you know, if you are a speculator, obviously you would know what's going on and you would uh, buy Czech currency at a low level. And then when people will find out that it was all wrong, the currency will rebound and you will sell it again and you will make a profit. So it, false information increases volatility. Uh, uh, you, can, you can talk about the stock market, the stock market also. Rumors, for example, a country, uh, one company, uh, something bad happens and its stock starts to fall. But people confuse it with another company or you can p- confuse it with uh, another company in the same sector. And that's also happened. I do recall this even before the, the let's say, the, the massive uh, internet revolution that took place, like a little bit before that, I, I recall there, were, there was a company that started to say or produce call news agencies because at that, interest, at that point, the internet was not so developed. So they, they called news agents, they called CNBC, telling them, look, this stock, our stock is falling, but it has nothing to do with that company. And this took about maybe two or three or four days until people realized, in fact, they were dumping the wrong stock. In, in the meanwhile, again, if you are a speculator, you would obviously know what's going on and you would make money. So false information is bad because it, is, it, you know, it makes the world more volatile and it makes you more vulnerable. And people who are aware of what's true, what's false, they make, they make a profit accordingly. But the people who are engaged in production who are the victims of it, they would lose. Okay. Now, Professor, let's talk about how we can uh, decrease the probability of uh, information being false. Do you think uh, some sort of controls by the government uh, on information could possibly help uh, companies and a normal consumer? Could it be more beneficial controls, more controls by the government? I believe, yes. You know, if you... If you are able to, let's say, monitor and verify the source of information better, then that would increase the efficiency generally of the capitalist system. It will also reduce volatility, which would be good for everybody who is, uh, uh, who is engaged in, in the real world. You know, at least what the government can do, they can force uh, the big platforms or any platform, actually, uh, as a matter of regulation, that they have to verify the identity of the individuals and of the institutions uh, that are using their platform to produce information. In that way, information cannot be disseminated anonymously because you will be staking your reputation. So, but as long as that is done uh, within their limits of cost- individual constitutional rights, then that would work. I can give you an example, not particularly related to economics, but more like to politics. At one point, I do recall, for example, when Facebook started to become more and more popular, I started to see a page on Facebook with my name on it. I was, you know, the spelling of my name is not that common. So, so I was thinking, who could this person, who, who could this person who created that page be? And it had a sculpture of the face of Bin Laden and a gun uh, pointed at his head. So I, I look at the page and I look at the friends and they were just uh, two people. One of them, uh, not recognizable, like uh, I couldn't Google him, I didn't find out who he is. The other one was the mass murderer, the Andres Breivik, the Norwegian mass murderer who killed about like 75 people. I don't remember exactly the number. This was about maybe 15 years ago. And then I found out that he had read one of my papers that I published in 1997 about the Lebanese civil war. And he quoted me in his manifesto right before he committed his murder. I, what I did is I contacted Facebook. I told them, look, this person, whoever created this, he's a, he's a, he created under a false identity. This is not 
it is supposed to be me, but it is not me. So they said we cannot do anything because they didn't violate the rules. So I don't know why would Facebook not verify the identity? You know, if you are opening up an account, at least make sure, like this, the way you are opening up a bank account, they take, they get some documentation and they know this is who you are. So, you know, this, whoever this page is, uh, they could produce, uh, not just about politics, they could talk about anything. They could produce uh, false economic information. The problem, however, that governments face is that when you have international conflict everywhere, why would governments uh, cooperate on this? The governments, when they are about to fight each other, I mean, look, for example, what's happening today between Russia and the United States in Ukraine. When they are about to fight each other, I don't think they are willing to cooperate on information. I think they will try to use all the weapons and information is one of them. So while it, I would say, yes, it would be good to have some sort of international consensus to enforce identity verification and verification of truth, that's an, more like an ideal. As long as you're going to have international conflict, I think it is very difficult to enforce. But maybe you can enforce it within certain political borders, like in the United States, in Russia, in Turkey. At least you, that way you can have less misinformation disseminated. Okay. Now, Professor, since you mentioned politics, I know you're an expert in uh, Middle East as well. You've authored multiple books, Politics in the Middle East. So tell me, how do you think uh, the flow of uncensored information impacted the Middle East over the past, uh, let's say, one decade since the Arab Spring? Well, that's a very good question. See, uh, Jafar, I have been thinking about this problem very long time ago. To be more specific, I don't, you, I'm sure you know the Al Jazeera satellite channel, although it has nothing to do with the internet, but this was prior to the uh, explosion of the internet. The Al Jazeera, it was based in Qatar, but it was satellite, uh, meaning that it could start to broadcast everywhere in the Arabic-speaking world. Uh, that was 1997, by surpassing, surmounting all of the of all government censorship. It became very popular in the Middle East, in the Arabic-speaking world, because it was saying things that people usually were not able to say within their own controlled uh, state information systems, state-controlled TV and so on. So at that time, when I started to hear things that people usually would say privately, but they would not say pub to hear it on TV. I thought this is going to be very important in the development of, uh, in the political development of the Middle East. And later on, as the internet emerged, this phenomenon has become more and more ubiquitous. It become uh, the idea that people say things in private. It used to stay private. It used to stay within small circles. Now it can be said in public and everybody could hear it. And within the context of the Middle East, where you have many sects, many small groups who are historically, unfortunately, against each other, once they start saying things in public, this is going to lead to a major problem in the future. And uh, that's when I actually, when, the, when Al Jazeera celebrated the 10th year anniversary, Jazeera Arabic in the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, I was invited and I presented a paper called uh, Al Jazeera and the Counter Movement to Globalization, in which I predicted there will be a rise of sectarianism. Uh, simply because people are saying what is on their mind. And I was, and this was 2007, and I started actually to write my book uh, beginning 2009, The Unmaking of Nation States in the Middle East. And in 2011, uh, you know, the Arab Spring broke. And uh, I just changed the title into the religious roots of the Syrian conflict. Basically, I was arguing that when in the past, the governments controlled what people could say so that they will not have conflict. You were only supposed to say things that were correct, politically correct, that is. You don't say things that are offensive to other people. 
especially when people take their religions very seriously. So when this became out of control, uh, it had to have some consequences. When private truths started to become public, there had to be consequences. And I mean, that kind of information, unfortunately, uh, led to catastrophic outcome in the Middle East. So although I would hate, uh, I hate uh, dictatorships and I hate government controls, but when you have so much conflict that is so antagonistic and so dangerous and totally uncontrolled and could be definitely also false, then Professor, you are... if I interject, so in other words, are you indicating that uh, today's Middle East would be better off had the governments back then in the Middle East imposed some sort of regulations uh, over the flow of information? Yes, one on one hand, yes, but also on the other hand, they should have been more truthful also. That is, not to depend in their broadcasts, in their coverage of news, purely on propaganda. These institutions had to produce more credibility. The problem was that the institutions, the government institutions, had no credibility, and, and you have this alternative that's coming out, it's totally uncontrolled. So the uncontrolled information won over individuals. Because people simply, they know that what is propaganda, what's not. So the government had to work in the middle way, produce information that is close to reality. At the same time, not to let people engage in mutually offensive dialogue that has no, really no, no useful function to play in society, especially in the Middle East. Because if I'm saying this in the United States, people would say, well, you're talking about censorship, you're uh, you know, this is not freedom of... But, but in the Middle East, people, religions very seriously, they equate between their religion and their dignity. So uh, to say something, anything against their beliefs, uh, for them, it's a personal insult. So that produces violence. Do you think the American idea of freedom of expression does not apply to some parts of the world, for example, the Middle East? I would have to say, yes, it, it doesn't apply in the sense what uh, the people in the Middle East are not ready they are not ready for that sort of uh, discourse. Primarily, that's because uh, of their religion, correct? Also, yes and no. Uh, I mean, individually, people are not dealing with ideas as ideas. They are not dealing with religion as an idea. Uh, they are dealing with it in more emotionally. And it, it is very much into who they are. You know, it's not like you are sitting in the United States, uh, you have a conference with, with other academics, you sit and you say what you want, he, the other person says what he wants, and you all are aware that you are dealing with ideas. Okay. I think we went uh, a bit over time, but uh, this is such an important discussion. I wish we had more time, Professor Thomas. Thank you very much for taking out the time for this important uh, podcast. As always, I really appreciate your analysis. Thank you very much, Jafar.